everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. I've worked at the temple for probably about the past decade now, um, and they run 12-day retreats working with six ceremonies, uh, predominantly working with ayahuasca and the Shipibo lineage, and it's a really amazing place if you're interested in working with plant medicine, in particular with ayahuasca, working with a culture that's worked with these plants for a very long time, um, and just a, a set and setting that's really uh, amazingly conducive to going in and doing really deep work. Um, they work with four different curanderos or healers, two to three facilitators, a pre-ceremony yoga teacher. There's people who work with massage and bone setting, herbalists. So it's just a, a really amazing environment to be able to experience this work and to experience really deep healing uh, and, and really deep insight into oneself. So if you're interested, uh, the temple has unfortunately been closed since March of 2020 due to the pandemic, um, but they are scheduled to reopen in June of 2021. So to find out more information, check out their website at templeofthewayoflight.org and they'll be a link in the show notes. Also myself and my colleague Marav Artsy, who I interviewed, I believe in episode 28 of the show, will be running plant dietas or diets in the Sacred Valley of Peru. Uh, we actually just finished one yesterday and although this show will be airing a little bit later, so um, but we just finished one and we'll be doing another one in the month of May and another one in the month of September. And that's a really beautiful way to go deeply into this plant world, to begin to heal and learn from these different plants, working in the tradition that we were trained in, working with tobacco and tree diets. Um, so that's a really amazing opportunity. And if you'd like to learn more about that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org or Marav's site at tobacco.org. Diets.com, and there'll be a link of both of those in the show notes. Um, my guest today is my friend Mike Brancatelli, and I met Mike actually working at the Temple of the Way of Light. He came down originally as a guest, and then he came back uh, to do a work exchange program, and uh, he's a really great guy. We connected right away. We were both living in New York, um, both really interested in uh, liberty, libertarian philosophies. Um, he's also a comedian. He's uh, friends with some comedians who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, he started a podcast called Mikeadelic, where he talks about things like psychedelics, liberty. He's working a lot with decriminalizing, especially psilocybin, where he's living now in Colorado. Um, we got into some really interesting topics, all of that. Um, some uh, retreats he's doing, um, some men's work he's doing, and, and really just kind of these ideas of, of what liberty means, cognitive liberty of working with these plants, and then also uh, transposing those onto liberty at large and what that means to live in a, in a free society, a society that really embodies those principles of liberty. So it was a great conversation. I, I always really enjoy talking to Mike. Uh, we, we have a lot in common. We, we, we share and riff a lot. So uh, it's always really great to talk to him, to hear from him. And I think you all will get a lot out of this podcast. Um, 
As always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me, to the show, to help to continue to bring on new guests. A really good way of doing that is via Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, And for just a few dollars a month, you can subscribe. There's different tiers that give you different benefits, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. So that's a really big help to support me. And in supporting, you also get things back. So it's kind of a nice reciprocity. Uh, If you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube page, subscribing to the show, um, liking the video, and turning on the notification bell. That's a really big help in getting the show out to a bigger audience. That really helps with the algorithms. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a review. That would be a really big help. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. To all the Patreon subscribers, thank you very much. Um, there's also the option of direct donating via PayPal. There's a link in the show notes with that as well. So I really hope you enjoyed this show. I definitely enjoy talking to Mike. I hope you gained something from it, and I will see you on the next episode. Well, welcome. It's uh, it's good to see you again. Looks like you're you got a whole little studio set up going there. Yeah, a little bit. Got a little, t- tiny little space, but it's good for what I need. So you're living in uh, around the Denver area now. Yeah, I'm in Denver. Yeah, in the city. Yeah. Nice man. So we met. Uh, I don't know. It's it's been a number of years ago at the um, <clears throat> at the Amazonian Healing Center, the Temple, the Way of the Light. You came down. What was it originally? Uh, you came down as a guest, and then you you got offered a chance to to do some work exchange. I I'm not even sure the the exact story of how you came down in the first place. Well, yeah, my first trip down to the temple was as a guest in the summer of 2016. And then, um, you know, to say that I had a profound experience would be an understatement. And, uh, and I, and I was like, okay, well maybe, maybe I'm meant to do something in this, in this world. And, uh, so I, I came back as a volunteer as an, uh, RP. Um, and I think that's when I met you during one of the, you know, people coming in and out during one of the like last, uh, groups that I think I was a part of. And then, uh, uh, and then I came back cause I was going to do, I was going to do a podcast, I think for the, for the temple, but then it was kind of like some other things and, um, I couldn't, I don't know. I, I had some other things going on. So then I went, I wound up leaving, but, um, but that was cool too. It's cool to be back there in that capacity. So what got and now you? You're, and now you're, you're doing that. Now that's <laughs> kind of what you're doing. And it's awesome. And you're doing an amazing job. Uh, I've listened to a bunch of, of the shows that you've created and I lo- it's just great. I love what you're doing. So thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, brother. <clears throat> so what got you interested in, in plant medicine in the first place or, or specifically with ayahuasca and then kind of that call to come down to the Amazon? Yeah, for ayahuasca, it was, um, you know, I had been journeying with high doses of psilocybin and taking other psychedelics kind of in more of a recreational setting, but 
psilocybin was kind of my intentional journeying method. I had this whole setup, you know, the Terrence McKenna sort of five dried grams in silent darkness. And, you know, I was like a, a part of that. And then, and then, um, but, but, but these kind of deeper core traumas or wounds or just unconscious habits that I couldn't see the root cause of didn't seem to be going away. And I also didn't know anything about the work integration. Like I didn't know anything really. I was just kind of doing stuff on my own. But I heard, I believe it was Amber Lyon talk about the healing powers of ayahuasca, former CNN war correspondent, journalist, uh, Amber Lyon, who whistleblower and now plant medicine activist. Um, <clears throat> and I also heard Aubrey Marcus on Joe Rogan's show talk about it. So I thought, okay, well, maybe there's really something to this. Maybe there's really something to uh, to, to this thing. And and I specifically chose the the temple because it is a healing center, and that's why I was going down it was for healing. And actually, funny enough, I originally couldn't get into the temple because they were all booked up for the times I wanted to go. So I was just like, "Well, I'll just go to this other place." And the other place was like, I think it was called Pulse Adventure Tours, and they have like zip lining and like all this other stuff. And I'm just like. Yeah, maybe I read some things on Reddit. It, it, they didn't have some good things to say about some of the the people there and stuff. So I thought, um, all right, maybe this isn't a good idea. And then magically, like a spot appeared for the retreat that I wanted to go on at the temple. So I I went, but I I went out of desperation. I just I felt like I was really suffering and had some some deep wounds that I couldn't touch or couldn't reach. So it was really a, a true uh, healing journey for me. Mm-hmm. So you, you grew up in the, I think the New York area. Um, and originally you were really interested in comedy. Yeah. You were, cause I know you were friends with Dave Smith and, and you were in that comedy scene. What was that like? Is that something you, I mean, I guess we can talk about that later, but I know you're starting a new comedy podcast. You have a podcast, so we'll go into that. But what was, what was the interest or what drew you to, to comedy? Well, uh, I, people always told me I was funny and I kind of, I knew I was funny cause it make people laugh and, and it felt good, you know? And like all my friends were funny, you know, I think like I was a party guy, you know? So I think like growing up, the most important thing to me was always like going out partying and there was always like drugs and, and alcohol involved. But, uh, but it was just about, uh, being the center of attention, making people laugh, feeling good all the time. And then I, they, I started like working and, and I just was like, this sucks. <laughs> this doesn't feel aligned. This doesn't feel good. Um, and then my friends who are all funny and hanging out all the time started not to so much anymore. And I was just like, well, uh, I'm living in New York city. Let me just go to like an open mic and just see, you know, what's going on. Um, and it was, um, it was a little weird at first because the open mics, the way that they are in New York city is they're not like, um, a regular crowd. It's just all comedians that are just like, Hey, I get minutes on stage. Like, cool. So it's not the best audience. Um, but anyway, I, I kind of like stuck with it. And, um, eventually I wound up getting check spots at clubs in the city, like stand up New York and LOL comedy club in times square, which is a real hell of a place. <laughs> Uh, emphasis on the hell, uh, but, but still good for me though, because I got to meet guys like Dave, like Luis Gomez, like Jay Okerson, Ari Shafir, 
Dan Soder, uh, the Lucas brothers, like just uh, all the great comedians that are doing things now. Like they were all a part of that sort of New York scene around 2013. And I just, uh, I just loved it. I don't know. It was just something, something that just seemed natural. I feel like comedy and now I'm, I've got this comedy podcast that I'm working on right now. And it just, uh, it feels like a natural language to me. Like, it feels like the way that I understand things in the world or my opinions about things or how I feel, I, I always feel better when it's from a comedic angle and I don't really have to like try to make it that way. It just seems kind of more natural to me that way. And, um, so that, that was it. And, um, uh, yeah, it was really fun while I, while I did the, the onstage stuff. It was good. So, so I met you at the temple and it was interesting because, um, you also came from New York. I came from New York. We were kind of in the middle of the jungle. Um, you also, you know, at the time you, you were kind of involved in politics and you were very interested in, in kind of libertarian philosophy inspired by people like Ron Paul, who I actually, you know, also have a lot of respect for. Um, and then you had also had this podcast, the Mycadelic podcast. So, what was what was kind of the um, the evolution that 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 made you start that podcast that got you interested in in things like politics and libertarian thought and and how did all of that come together also with comedy because I think for a lot of people those are like very foreign fields uh, <laughs> but, yeah you know actually they 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 can integrate beautifully together so what was it in your ex kind of experience that, that that brought all of those things together. Well, I was I was on stage doing stand up one night, but I I was also listening to Ron Paul talk on one of my earbuds, and then someone uh, dosed me with LSD, and I had a transformative experience, like the Hulk. Um, I wish I had a cool story like that, like I <laughs> you know like like a cool comic book um, story, but it, it did kind of feel like that, like over like a long stretch of time. I was just I was just really interested in seeking at the time, I guess seeking truth, right? Um, so I was um, like really getting my actual education uh, after college and um, I graduated college in, in 2009 and the economy had just tanked and I was applying for jobs and people were laughing at me because I, I was wanted to work in advertising. I thought I was going to be like Don Draper, you know, um, and uh, it wasn't going so well. And I was like, what is happening? Like what is happening with this like economy? You know, I thought everybody in my life just told me go and get your degree and then you'll make money and you'll be fine. And I just like, I didn't know anything. Cause like, like I said, I was just a party guy. I was interested in laughing, having fun. Um, and so I just was like, all right, well, this is what the adults say. This is what my parents say. This is what teachers say. This is what smart people say. So when that, when that happened, I, uh, was living in New York. I moved to New York city and I was trying to get a job and I couldn't get a job. And I started working at a restaurant and, um, and I was very interested in why things are the way they are. And I read a book by Peter Schiff called, uh, how, how an economy grows and why it crashes. My friend gave it to me. And, um, and then a friend of mine, uh, like I had been a big Obama guy in college because I didn't know anything. I was just like, this guy is an amazing speaker. You know, I was just in this trance of like, yeah, yes, we can, you know. And, uh, and um, 
And, uh, and so my friend said to me, and he's a black guy and he, and I was like, yeah, yeah, Obama, you know, like, uh, of course me just assuming like an idiot, like, oh, you must be for Obama. Right. And he's like, no, I actually like this guy, Ron Paul. He's really good and you should check him out. And he's from Texas, but he's cool. And I was like, well, okay. And so I started checking him out and then I was like immediately transformed. Like I, I just was like, wow, like everything that this guy is saying makes total sense. And at the same time, I was uh, consuming copious amounts of psychedelics, listening to a lot of Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna talks uh, online and reading Joseph Campbell, listening to Ram Dass and researching and finding out about like the, the 60s and the psychedelic scene and Timothy Leary and all that stuff. It was very new to me. So I'm like 24, 25 at this point, I guess. And um, so I was just like getting my mind blown like every day. And I still had that element of like wanting to be funny and, and things like that. Um, so the, it was like a lot going on, you know, psychedelics, libertarian philosophy, uh, spirituality and comedy. And then like on top of that, like a day job and um, a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs still at that point too. Um, but, but it was a, definitely a fun time and I definitely absorbed like a hell of a lot of, of stuff and yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was, that was sort of that, that period that was like everything happening at that one time. Mm. And what made you interested in starting the podcast? Oh, right. Mike Adelic. Um, so in 2014, Dave Smith and I decided to bring back part of the problem. He was doing it before and he stopped and we would hang out at LOL comedy club in like Eastville comedy club in the green room and just like talk philosophy and I was like, man, this guy's like really similar to me. And we're like, you know, but he seems like he knows more and he's been on the path for a little bit longer than I have. And he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, you got to check out this, this essay by Murray Rothbard called Anatomy of the State. And that like blew my mind and changed things. So we started, so I started kind of like, we just started talking and talking and talking every time we would hang out about this stuff. And then we started doing part of the problem at Stand Up New York Labs in New York, but in their podcast studio. And, but as I was progressing on this journey of mine, as I just explained all that stuff happening at the same time, um, I realized that like, I didn't really fit into part of the problem anymore. Cause it was kind of more of a daily politics show getting into the minutia of, of politicians and laws and news and what's happening. And it was just kind of eating at me. I couldn't handle it. It was like, it was like too heavy, you know, it was like too, too much. Um, but Dave is great at it. Dave's amazing at it. And, um, and so I, I told him, I said, Hey man, I'm thinking of starting my own show, uh, where I talk about Liberty, but from a psychedelic perspective, um, uh, cognitive Liberty, you know, which is, um, a term that you, you hear a lot going around now. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And he was like, yeah, go for it. And so that's, that's how it got birthed from that. It's it's interesting because you know as you mentioned in in this this kind of world of plant medicine, I think a lot of people, when you mention that idea of cognitive liberty, like that really resonates. But then if you take that to a political level, like the, these ideas of liberty and libertarianism, something then stops. Have you ever thought about like what that kind of disconnect is between understanding it in what one aspect, but not 
being able to to see it in all things. There's a beautiful quote by a, a samurai named Musashi, and he says, when you understand the way in one thing, then you can see it in all things broadly. But I often find in this work, <laughs> many people see it in this work, but they don't see it broadly. It's very narrowed to this idea. Have you thought about that at all? Like why oh, there's yeah. kind of this split? Totally, man. Great. I love, I love this. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting, right? Because it's like as above, so below, right? As within, so without it, we, we all have parts of ourself that we refuse to look at. It's, it's really, really challenging, I think, for the average person to sort of be logically consistent with their views. Um, and I don't know, there's, you know, the Dunning-Kruger cognitive bias. There's all these ways that we can package it and shape it and label it and say what kind of condition it is or whatever. But it is really interesting because when I talk about cognitive liberty among the psychedelic plant medicine, fungi, toad, conscious community, <laughs> um, is, there's got to be a better word for it, right? Uh, it, it's, uh, it's like they get it. Like I get pieces of liberty from like Jack Cornfield, from like Thich Nhat Hanh. I get pieces of liberty from – I see the liberty everywhere in the messages. However, it's, it's always compartmentalized, you know, and I think that's because – that's how we show up in the world as, com as compartmentalized that there's this fear. And especially with labels and names that there's, um, there's an, there's an idea, there's an association with the kind of energy that libertarian, what that means, what that represents. Um, so I think that there's this sort of kind of, uh, over intellectualization, that happens to try and distance yourself from being perceived with a particular group or ideology. Um, I don't know, maybe there's more to it, but that that's kind of my first initial, my initial thoughts on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I've, I've thought a lot about as well, but you know, it, certainly I think many people who are drawn to this work tend to be from very liberal leaning cities, certain socioeconomic classes, middle kind of upper class people, again, big city centers. And, and a lot of those tend to be, you know, in, in an American perspective, very left leaning. Um, and I think just based on history, a, a lot of libertarian thought tends to be potentially more right-leaning in the way that we look at it in that dualistic nature. So I, I think there's some some resistance to that. But um, I mean, maybe just how would you how would you if someone very likely people have never heard of that word libertarian. Some people probably have heard of it, but they don't really have an idea of, of what it really means. How would you, how would you define that on a really simple level for, for people who maybe aren't familiar with that? Oh yeah, man. Great question. I, and I think this is the definition. Everybody can get on board with the definition, right? Everybody can get on board with this definition. It's basically don't hurt people and don't steal their stuff. 
right? I mean, that's like the real simple thing. The golden rule, do as to others as you would have done unto you. That applies to it as well. But really, I mean, it's like we think about property, right? It's like our own property is our body, our mind, our soul, our spirit, who we are. We are sovereign beings. We have this inalienable gift of life to be able to create what we will from it. And we can, we can do whatever we want. Uh, as long as we don't infringe on other people's rights to do those things as well. Uh, so one of the principles that I think is a really great principle in theory, and if every and and you know if we could really kind of uh, come to a more uh, conscious and compassionate and curious and tolerant society, then we could have uh, the non-aggression principle as a fa- a fundamental pillar of what we strive for. Uh, and we're not always going to get it right. You know, we're, we're animals still. Right. And so, but I like the idea of, you know, um, everybody is free to do whatever they wish to consume, whatever they wish to alter their mind, body, as ever they wish their body, their choice, their mind, their soul, their choice. Right. Um, we, we, we agree with that, right. With, uh, abortion and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's kind of the, the simple way of explaining it is, uh, don't initiate aggression upon peaceful people don't lock people away for nonviolent crimes aka just doing nothing wrong causing no harm to others um and uh if we can do that if we can respect each other's choices it's actually one of the most tolerant and progressive ways of being you know it, it really comes with this very challenging maybe uh, principle of of tolerating diversity of human beings in terms of ideas and ways of governance and self organization. So don't hurt other people and don't uh, infringe on their rights to pursue their happiness and their pleasures. And that's pretty much it. That's how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that non aggression principle is key. And um, you know, as you mentioned, these really seem to be timeless kind of pieces of wisdom, you know, as you mentioned, the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. And, and this idea of, 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 of liberty, of living your life as you see fit, as long as you're not interfering in someone else's right to live their life, how they see fit. And again, I think when you put it in those terms, most people kind of nod their head. They're like, yeah, that sounds good. But it's, it's, it's then seemingly very hard to extrapolate that onto real life circumstances. And, you know, I I think maybe from my experience, one thing that comes to mind when you ask me why I think that is, is, and I think a lot actually goes back to the ceremony space where, you know, we realize that when we're sitting in that ceremony, it's, it's essentially all us. It's, it's, you know, we're going into our mind and we're dealing with our stuff but then it's 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 almost like this human phenomena where we want to impose then our beliefs on other people the the way we see the world is right or wrong it's a very fine line where we say okay that's true for me and therefore it must be true for you and that's how i want to see the world as this truth that that i believe and therefore it needs to be imposed on other people and you know, it's, that's where I think one of the really beautiful things about that philosophy is too, and in, in that idea of the non-aggression principle, because, you know, a, a lot of, 
I, I think a, a lot of people maybe who study this work, they come from a more academic perspective. And I think as we all know, you know, academia is very influenced by much more left-leaning philosophies, Marxism, socialism. And I think one of the, the real keys that people don't think about is those philosophies, when you're talking about these socialistic ideas, is that the only way when it comes down to it that those are enforced is by force. You know, ultimately, if you have, if you set up a society and you say, this is a law and this is how things are going to be, it's not a voluntary system anymore. It's a system that's ultimately, you know, it may start as, as scolding, verbal scolding, then there may be fines and there may be jail time. But ultimately, if someone doesn't agree to that, then you're saying you're going to use force to force that person to comply. And, you know, I think that's one of the really beautiful things about that philosophy of libertarianism is, is really this notion of non-aggression, that I don't have the right to aggress, to, 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 to put my views on someone else with using force. You know, we all have freedom of speech. We can say whatever we want. We can express however we want. But once we cross that line and we use force to Im impose that on someone, we've we've changed the ball game and and so i think you know a lot of people they have these these ideas and and i think that's something plant medicine tends to do is you know one of the kind of fundamental things that that many people experience is this idea of oneness you know this idea that we're not separate and and you know kind of this this brotherly or sisterly love and so I think, again, we extrapolate from that, well, this is how the world should be, you know, we should cooperate and we should do these things and we should support these organizations. But it's a very different thing. And I think that's kind of the, the fundamental key is the difference between a voluntary choice and something that's enforced with the threat of violence. And, you know, we all have the ability to create whatever world we want to live in voluntarily. You know, I can, I can choose to live my life however I want. I can support whatever organizations I want. I can give money to whoever I want. I can act with my, with my hands, with my labor, with my time, with my voice, with my, you know, choices, my, the, the, the money, the purchasing power I do. But that's a very different thing from saying this is how something should be and, we need a government to enforce that on everyone with the threat of violence, which yeah. essentially is what all government is, right? I mean, that's that's another real libertarian idea is that essentially government has a monopoly on violence. They, yeah. If there's a law and we don't agree to that, eventually they will come and use violence to coerce us into doing that. So. Right, right. Yeah, totally. And it's 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 uh outsourcing our own inter like our own responsibility to sort of make you know there's never going to be the this uh, a, a complete and total safety right like one of my favorite quotes of all time is from thomas jefferson where he said uh timid men prefer the calm of despotism uh over the tempestuous sea of liberty and that's what we're seeing a lot of right now. Actually, uh, Safa Roberts um, had a great Facebook post not too long ago, or maybe it was a, a few months back or something, where she talked about creating a safe space and how that's not necessarily really real because things are messy when you're working with plant medicine, when you're working with fungi, toad, when you're whatever you're working with. If, if you're venturing into the tempestuous sea of 
trying to unpack the infinitesimal components of your beingness, it's going to be fucking messy, right? It's going to be messy. It's not going to be clean. It's not going to be easy. So we can try our best to set up the situation with the proper setting and comfortable and, you know, people are vetted and this and that, but it, it's never guaranteed safety, not guaranteed, right? It's not. And we want, uh, we want that so badly. And a lot of this stuff, you know, what you're saying, especially too, I see it. It's so prevalent in the, in the plant medicine, spiritual world, you know, this kind of like narcissism and egocentrism and, and this also obfuscating our own personal responsibility and give trying to give it to a higher power to 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 let them do something it's all projection you know it's just like where have you gotten to the to the absolute root core of everything inside of you or are you compartmentalizing are you still keeping some things in little boxes and i'm sure you've seen this over your years of working as a facilitator just how deep do people go and where are the places that they still haven't gone yet because they're too scared and then they're going to project that onto other people, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, even that ceremonial space, I mean, that's a very, I think, libertarian ideal, right? Is it's, it's a voluntary exchange of goods. It's, we're providing this service, you're coming, you're, you're agreeing to certain rules, but at the end of the day, we're never forcing anyone. It's not like you have to drink, you know, we're going to put it. Oh, gun really? There have to dream. Oh, I, that was my, that was my experience. Actually, Tanya put a gun to my head and, <laughs> you know, and, and it's yeah, this idea right. yeah. of, of voluntary exchanges. And, you know, cause I think a lot of people, when they, when they think about libertarianism, it's this idea of like chaos that, you know, there's no order in anything and there's, Ooh, that's there's a whatever, good question. whatever order yeah. we want to put on things. Right. But it's a, it's a voluntary order. It's, we all agree to certain things and, uh, you know, you also mentioned this idea of fear, which, which again, I think that's another one of the real root causes is, and, and it's very interesting because as you said, it's like this thing of compartmentalizing. I think a lot of people see it in one aspect, but it's hard to put it out there broadly. And certainly from my experience, what plant medicine is doing, and, and this you hear in shamanic traditions all over the world, but it's this idea of power this idea of finding our own power now that that can also you know cross over into the realm of of what you may call witchcraft or like brujeria when you start using that power for nefarious purposes but again this is the choice that we make the choice we all have what do we choose to use that power for and that you know ultimately it's an internal power it's it's seeing that i'm not a victim that i have volition that i have choice that, you know, all of these things that arise in my life, I, I have the ability to navigate those, to heal those, to come back into wholeness. And, and I think these plants are really pointing us in that direction of finding our own internal power and finding truth, you know, finding freedom, being free of all of these things we're carrying around, being free of the baggage of the traumas, the, the beliefs. And so, but it's very interesting then, you know, transposing that onto life in general. And, you know, I think that the plant ceremony is a perfect metaphor of that is, you know, one of the, if probably the main thing that hinders all of us is fear, you know, fear of the unknown, fear of all of these things coming up, fear of actually letting go of these things, because that's who I think I am, you know, and what happens when I let go of those things. And so, it, you know, 
again, it's like, I think we can maybe understand that within the ceremonial space, but then it's difficult to put it at the world at large. When this fear arises, we want someone else to take care of it, you know, and it's much easier to say, okay, well, we need to do this rather than I need to do this. <laughs> you know, there's a problem. Well, then mm -hmm. I, I can fix it. I have the power to fix it. And it's much easier, you know, in that state of fear to kind of give away our liberty, give away our freedom, give away our volition, give away our power. Uh, I think as, you know, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, you know, something along the lines, if, if we're willing to sacrifice our liberty for security, then we deserve neither. Because our security, right. the, the true security is our freedom. It is our liberty. <laughs> you know, that's the very right. thing that sets us free. And if we give that up in the name of, you know, something else, we end up losing that. And it's one of my favorite quotes in the Tao Te Ching, I think, points to that really beautifully, which is that this idea of let go of the common good and the good becomes as common as grass. But we think, that, you know, yeah. by by controlling the world, which is what we try and do internally, right? Is like control my world exactly. and I'll be safe right. and I'll be happy. But as we see, that's usually not the case, but we transpose that to the outside world too. You know, if only the world was how I wanted it and there were these organizations that enforce that, then I would be happy, then I would be safe but that's also not the case. So, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. These Taoists and Buddhist beliefs um, and philosophies and, and, and works, uh, great works of, uh, of writing uh, are really congruent with um, libertarian uh, ideas, you know, and um, it is uh, a large part of this is that surrendering and that letting go, right? Because how many people, the, it can't be magnified to the world at large because how many people are stuck in the yearning for once I get to this, then I'll be this. Once I have this, once, oh, once the checks come in, then I'll be good. Or once the, once this is taken care of by someone else, then I'll be able to do something, you know? And, and even within the, the plant medicine community, it's, you know, go, going back to that other question of what you were talking about, like, why do you think that is? It's, it's because it's, even in this community space, there's a, there's a worship, there's a hierarchy, there's an idealization of, um, you know, or a, ro a romantic kind of idealization of the shaman, the guru, the healer, uh, the wise one, the one that knows that the plants they know. Um, and it, 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 so there's still an attachment to something outside of ourselves, um, that we are okay giving power to. And so that's really, when it comes to government, um, there is this idea, I think, with a lot of people that they cannot simply imagine letting go of the concept of a rule by force. They can't see any other way, right? Um, and it's scary and it's hard. It's like getting those training wheels off your bike and, and not necessarily trusting in yourself or, or whatever. And so I think that that is, there's this idea, I think also that a lot of people have that if the government weren't to exist, that, that corporations would take over and they would, uh, they would be making everybody's lives hell and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's like, I got news for you. There already is a corporation that's taken over and is making everyone's lives hell. It's called the government. <laughs> it's called the, the federal government They're, you know, they're the, they're the largest corporation with a monopoly on violence that doesn't serve any services or doesn't sell any services or products. 
Um, and so I really think it is this kind of a combination of a lot of the things that you said, right. Is like this, this fear and like not wanting to let go and not wanting to surrender into the unknown. And a lot of that also comes with us not being able to go deep within and we don't trust ourselves. And there's still that scared unknown place within us. So a lot of people think that if we don't have the government, that people are just going to be out there killing everyone and eating everyone in the streets, even though we know uh, from studies that have been done and, um, and, and a lot of, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Rebecca Solnit. Is that, is that her name? I always forget if it's Susan or Rebecca Solnit wrote uh, Paradise Built in Hell, a uh, book where she d- did a study on, on people's generosity after um, events like Katrina and things like that. It's like most of the time, and I, I witnessed this firsthand with Hurricane Sandy in New York, most of the time when order has collapsed, this, this idea that you mentioned that where people think that there's just going to be chaos. Most of the time people come together to help each other. After Hurricane Sandy happened in New York, I was living in the Lower East Side. Trees were uprooted, flooding everywhere. Uh, power was out. I went out on the street. I'd never seen New York like this before or again since that time. People just walking up to each other going, are you Okay. Do you need anything? Are you good? Do you guys have power? If anyone needs any water or anything, we have we have stuff like people were coming out and helping each other, uh, giving people quarters to make payphone calls, uh, things of that nature. So it's in our nature to be that way, you know. It's in our nature to to do that, and um, yeah, another like I I think that the, that it's uh, you know. I don't really have a good end to that, but you know, <laughs> well, it reminds me, as you said, I think very well, you know, we often tend to like idealize or fetishize certain things, but we only look at it on the surface. And, and again, we don't look at it from a place of principle. And I think that's one of the, for me, one of the real keys that's missing is, you know, principle. And I think so many of us we've lost, like, what does that mean? And much like Musashi was saying, like, if you understand the principle, then you can apply it to all things. If we don't understand the principle, then the world does seem chaotic because there's nothing to hold on to. And, you know, you, you, you use this really good example of, you know, when, when there are times of need, people come together. And again, it's not through coercion. It's through a voluntary exchange that this is what's best for me. And by doing what's good for me, it's also good for other people. And, you know, an example I often think of is because, again, I, I think we tend to, to kind of transpose these things in like indigenous communities that they are like, right. they're, they're communal, therefore they're communist. And, but that's not, from my experience, that's not the case at all. And there's a really good book called uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And it was written by oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Daniel Everett. Yeah, I yeah exactly. Read that. Yeah, he the was a Pinaha Christian missionary. Yeah, you, we came down to the Pinaha people in Brazil, and he gives this beautiful example where this guy's house fell down, and the whole village just started laughing. <laughs> Why? Because it's funny, you know? It's like your house just fell down. <laughs> you know, going back to comedy, like, if, if you're not that attached to the outcome, that's pretty hilarious. That's like, someone's house that's just it. fell down. But there's no chief saying, okay, you know, you have to rebuild that or we have to come together now as a community. And if you don't do that, there's going to be coercion, there's going to be force, there's going to be consequences. What ends up happening, everyone comes together, they all 
put in their their time and their labor and they build that guy's house again. Why? Because when you work together as a community, things get done much faster than if you were only to work as an individual. But there's no threat of coercion. There's no threat of force. It's a voluntary exchange because it benefits everyone. And how does it benefit everyone? Because when Mm -hmm. someone else's house falls down, then everyone's going to come together. Why? Because you help me. So I'm going to help you. Now, if one guy doesn't want to participate and help, he doesn't have to. Nobody's telling him that. But guess what? When his house falls down, probably no one's going to help him. Why? Because he didn't help anyone else, you know? And so it's this, when I think when we act in, in this voluntary exchange for our own good, for the good of the community, then, then things actually work. You know, it's... Uh, it's kind of like anything. Like, I mean, I think we all realize this, like even as kids, you know, like when you're told to do something, there's a natural resistance to it. It's like, nobody wants mm-hmm. to be forced to do something against their will. But if you can, right. if you can see within yourself that it, it's beneficial towards you, then, then you're going to be drawn to do it. So. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we're all anarchists, you know, on, on every, and every day we're all, uh, enacting the sort of uh, anarcho-capitalist, libertarian type way of 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 exchange of goods and services, you, you know, and and of you, even if you think about it, when you go to like a, a party, right? Like it, it, it's just people. The way that we act in our lives on a daily basis with each other is the way in which. Uh, most libertarians and 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 anarcho capitalists are are thinking of how we could have a society, right? But then what happens is you get people that say, "Well, what about the roads? Or what about the military? Or what about this? Or what about that?" And you know we have answers to to all that stuff as well. And it's just about do you want to go there, and are you willing to be open to a, a discussion that doesn't get um, clouded by uh, sort of irrational fears or emotional hysteria. Mm-hmm. And we're in the age of that, you know, we're in the age of, of everybody needs to be hysterical about everything uh, to get, to get attention. We're in everybody's clickbait, you know? Have you given any thought why that seems like a really, again, hard thing to extrapolate? Like, cause you, you, you said it very well, this idea of property, and, and again, a lot of people don't believe in property, but again, for me, that seems like they, they really haven't extrapolated it down to the principle, down to the root. And you said it very well, like ultimately my body, I think we can all agree that that's my property. You know, that's why we, we say like, you can't rape me. You can't like steal my organ. You know, you can't, you can't take my heart out it why because that's my property we we realize that that's mine like that that belongs to me and then to extend that out naturally you know like my house you know it's and we all we all agree that that's my property and we discriminate based on that you know if a guy shows up in a ski mask and an AK47 to my doorstep I'm not going to let him in. <laughs> if I didn't believe in property, I would let him in, right? But no, I, mm-hmm. I'm saying, no, this is my house. This is my safe space. This is where my family is. I'm not going to let him in. Like, that's, right. that's my boundary, you know? And then, and then even as a collective, as a community, you know, we decide certain things. We say, hey, this can happen, this can happen as, as a state. And, you know, but this idea that the, the most fundamental thing is, 
is the the person, the individual, like the body. And then we begin to expand out, you know, and to, to each layer we expand, it's to less and less degree, but there's still some thread that goes through that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, again, it seems like one of these things where if we realize that, like we all do realize that, you know, but then again, it seems like it's very difficult for us to extrapolate that out to, to a larger picture. Yeah. And, and I think what happens is you just, it's, it's tainted the, 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 the terms of like, like ownership or property or my rights, even the word freedom and liberty, libertarian, all these words have been hijacked and co-opted and tainted. And, and, um, you know, uh, even now with, uh, like a lot of the QAnon conspiracy type stuff. I mean, it's really, in my opinion, a brilliant psychological operation because what you do is you take a lot of things that are true, throw in a lot of things that are loony, loony tunes and, you know, trap a lot of otherwise intelligent people who are seeking truth and want to know what's going on in the world into a, a labyrinth of a never ending labyrinth where they, they will never get out. And, and then, you know, you can ridicule and you can say, Oh, look at these crazies. You just conflate everyone together. So, you know, uh, whatever the nine 11 and the flat earth or JFK and the, and, and, you know, the, the hollow earth theory or whatever, are like all, all conflated into one thing. And it's a really genius tactic because you can just dismiss and you can ridicule, um, and it gives uh, – and then, and then what people want to do is they want to say, well, because we don't want to be associated with that, we're going to go to the other opposite end of the spectrum. So, you know, yeah, government and mandate things and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and same thing with, uh, with the ideas uh, of liberty you know, and, and property. And it's um, – unfortunately, what I wanted to ask you when you brought up what comes to mind about libertarianism, because I'd love to get your, your answer about this. When I think of what comes up for most people in their minds about libertarianism, oh, the Koch brothers – Oh, the, 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 oh, the Chicago school, Milton Friedman. Oh, that didn't work out. You know, there's all, there's all these kinds of um, false ideas about what libertarians actually think. And let's not forget, there's also some really bad libertarians out there that are in prominent positions, people that are associated with the Cato Institute and uh, even the LP, uh, the party. So I'm not like a, I'm not like a libertarian party guy necessarily, but anyway, a perception, you know, we live in the age of aesthetics and everything is optics and perception. Everything is a grand stage to have a, a show upon. That's the age that we're living in now. So uh, these deeper ideas and these kind of, um, you know, applying things and extra extrapolating for logical consistency across the board in all aspects of life is unfortunately lost because we're in the... Um, we're in this age of everything is a show and everything is a clickbait headline and everything comes with an emotional, uh, you know, uh, tan temper tantrum with it. Mm -hmm. Why do you, why do you think it is? <clears throat> I, I mean, maybe it's always been like this, but it, I, I guess my question is, especially about comedy and comedians, you know, they, they often really seem to be the people that kind of push back on a lot of these things. Uh, you know, as you were mentioned, kind of this, this culture that's about blaming and, and showboating and, and clickbait and, you know, very much like the, the, the woke culture, very much, you know, finger pointing on everything. 
you know, it seems like in the, in the day we're living in, a lot of comedians, you know, people like Joe Rogan, Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle, Dave Smith, who you mentioned, it seems like a lot of these are the people who, at least publicly, are the ones kind of pushing back against a lot of these, uh, for lack of better words, bad ideas. Do you think that's just something inherent in comedy, which is part of that is observing the absurdity of, of where society is and trying to push back and make light of that. Uh, because it seems like, you know, a lot of people are, are also really afraid to speak out right now. And it seems like comedians are some of the very few people who, who have that courage. Do you think that's just kind of part of the nature of, of what it is to be a comedian? Or, or do you think there's something in the society that, that even maybe asked, them of that. I mean, I also think of people like George Carlin, you know, I mean, one of the great comedians. I mean, I think very much in alignment with things we were speaking of. He was talking about these things, you know, back in the 70s. I mean, he was way ahead of his time in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, a real truth teller, a real revealer, a real, uh, you know, dancer on the bridge between worlds. I think that the great comedians are a type of shaman almost you know a type of uh the the madman and the mystic swim in the same waters as joseph campbell says and the only difference is the mystic comes back and the madman drowns and a lot of comedians do drown because they're so brilliant they're so genius and they're also dancing on that line of of like be not being able to to hold everything that comes with having that capacity. So you see them, you know, overdosing on drugs or just, you know, drinking too much or go, you know, going crazy. But I think the truly great comedians, I think it was, uh, I think it was Mark Normand, who's a great comedian, told me one time, he's like, I, you know, I, I have to be a comedian. I mean, I'm, I'm insane. I can't exist in the, in the real world. I have to do this. If I, you know, so it's like, thank God there's this outlet for these people. And yes, I think that the great comedians, they're, they're the ones that don't necessarily choose to do it, but feel called to do it because it's just the way that they see the world. They see the world in a very particular way. And they're always questioning, why is this like this? Why is that like that? What if this was like that? What if this was like this? And I think the, the great ones have that key insight and can apply it to everything. Um, and so uh, I, I think that, that that's a particular kind of gift to have, uh, to be able to do that and to be able to be the sort of kind of, you know, cosmic joker or trickster type, uh, you know, maybe, maybe going into those darker, like a, a guy who I think of as kind of a, embodying that sort of darker trickster type comedic energy is uh, Tim Dillon, uh, the Tim Dillon show. And he, he's, he really touches on a lot of really true things, but he says it in such a funny way you know, there's something, there's something really powerful about communicating truth with laughter because it's undeniable, you know, it's, it's just undeniable. If you're laughing, you're laughing. And if, and if you're, and there's truth in there, you're going to get that message too. Just like Carly, Carlin was great at it. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think that for the people that can hear that, they can hear that. And other people will just say, oh, well, they're just jokes or whatever, but, they're really revealers of truth, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know that I'd really thought about that. It's, I mean, if a joke works, 
I mean, <laughs> I think for sure now in, in, in this day and age, people can, you know, purposely hold back. And I've seen that because there's like this idea that I shouldn't laugh at something because it's not, you know, politically correct or appropriate. But there, there is truth in that. Like if something is funny, you have to laugh. And the reason it's funny is because there's truth in that. And, and often what comedy right. is doing is it's pointing out these absurdities, these stereotypes, these things that have truth in them. And with with comedy, you reveal that. And it's like people are kind of forced to, in a sense, shift their worldview in a way, which, again, is exactly what plant medicine is doing, is it's shifting our worldview. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you an example of a joke that came to mind. I forget the comedian that said it, but it was it's really simple, really easy, uh, but really funny observation where he's like, you know, when you go to the airport, the TSA, they don't allow you to take over like three ounces of liquid, you know, in, in case it might be a bomb. So uh, they, you know, they take it and they throw it in the trash can right there. And they just keep doing that all day, you know, in case it's a bomb. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like there's so many logical, you know, we just live in a sea of logical inconsistencies and confusion. And I think that's really uh, a, a baked into how one would control a population of 330 million people in the United States is to keep them constantly confused and keep them constantly saying like, Oh, well, I mean, I, I guess this doesn't really make sense, but that's what they're asking us to do. And it's not really that bad or it's not that big of a deal. So, okay, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned, uh, Amber Lyons and she, she was a journalist I think she worked for CNN. I don't remember the whole story. She but did. I, yeah. Yeah. I think she exposed, I don't know if it was Bahrain or Qatar, uh, Bahrain. Yeah. And essentially, they were funding CNN, and but CNN didn't make it public. And then she saw that essentially CNN wasn't reporting on these kind of uh, nefarious things they were doing. And, you know, she saw that it was a huge conflict of interest. Then I think she started seeing it in more things. And then she she got away from that and she got interested in plant medicine. And, and she's become, you know, I think one of the really powerful voices of that. Um, so I think that's, that's again, something that's really interesting with plant medicine. And do you think from your experience that, because again, we mentioned this idea of kind of shifting your worldview. And I think that's really what happened with her. She started, you know, something came up in her life where she saw like, hey, this isn't right. Something is off. And then she started working with plant medicine. And, and then I think she really started to see it in a bigger picture. Like, you know, all of the ways in which these things are really kind of working together to create this you know, again, kind of nefarious situation that we're living in. Is that something in your life? You know, you, you said you, you, you overcame some traumas and, and some, some, I forget the word you use, some, some beliefs or some patterns. Um, was that something when you started working with plant medicine that really kind of expedited that shift? Or was it just kind of like a cleaning and a clearing process that then kind of left you with these, these eyes that were new and started seeing things in a different way? Or do you mm -hmm. think it was just kind of a natural progression that one led to the next and that led to the, the next? Yeah, so I've always felt like I was like an alien on a foreign planet. You know, when I was a kid, I was just like, I don't understand why I have to do things that are, people are asking and making me do. And I don't like, I was just always like, why, 
why do I have to wake up and go on this bus to go to this place and do these? I don't get it. And, and I would question everybody and nobody could ever give me a good answer. It always boiled down to, because that's the way it is, because that's what we say, because that's what we're, because we're the adults and we say so. Um, and so no one could ever ha have an, a, a discussion with me about these things. So there was an element of me that felt crazy, that felt isolated, alone in this, my private world of, I think all these things and feel all these things. But when I communicate them, I get looked at like I have six heads. Like people are like, huh, what, 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 what do you mean? Um, and uh, so when I first started diving into uh, psychedelics, it's, it, was, um, uh, it, it was this confirmation that, uh, oh yeah, dude, you're, you're right. Like you're just, you have to go with what you feel. And so little by little, I started to kind of come out and speak out more and more about how I truly felt about things. And, um, then with plant medicines, with ayahuasca, it really expedited and elevated that to a whole other dimension of reality that I wasn't even aware that I could access. Um, and has, and helps inform me and helps keep me on the path. Uh, and I really view it as a symbiotic relationship, uh, uh an apprenticeship, uh, if you will, uh, continued to this day. What do you think? I don't know if you thought about this, but what do you think is that line? It's something I've always thought about, which is, you know, even even like ayahuasca in in the tradition where where you came down and where we were working, it's working with Shipibo people, and and their name for ayahuasca is uni, and mm -hmm. one who works with uni is an onaya, which is usually translated in this idea of like one who knows, and it's this interesting thing because you brought up in the beginning we often tend to like give away our power to some external authority and potentially in this community it's this idea of giving it up to you know plant spirit or god told me or ayahuasca told me what do you think is the line between the truth of that which you know and and i don't know if you think this way but you know, if you do, like maybe there is this higher source that is communicating that is trying to impart oh, on us like gotcha. a real truth, you know, a truth that in 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 I think many traditions, you know, many esoteric traditions, they speak of this idea of truth with like a capital T, not like I believe this to be true, but truth in the sense of this is the way of it, this is the reality. It's something that's undeniable, you know, like that the sun rises and it sets. It's, you know, if we fight with that, kind of in the terms of like Byron Katie, like if we fight reality, we we lose, you know, mm -hmm. because there is, there are truths, there are fundamental truths. And, and that potentially that's what a lot of these esoteric traditions are pointing towards. And yet at the same time, that line where it seems like a lot of these plant medicines can also exacerbate or maybe like further ingrain certain patterns that we already have. Uh, you know, and again, I think we can see that a lot in this community that, you know, while certain things may be cleaned and cleared and ordered, there's other things where that ego can even be stronger, you know, solidified in certain beliefs that we have, which are not necessarily the, the the best things or certainly run counter to how other people 
view things. So certainly we can't say that's fundamentally true in the sense of, you know, well, if you believe that, that's true. But what if this guy believes something else? Does that mean he's not true? Or so do you have any sense of, you know, what what that line is between maybe like fundamental truths versus you know, you mentioned this idea of like ego that or narcissism that can also be exacerbated when people begin to work with these things. Is that something you've thought about at all? I know that's kind of maybe a uh, a little awkward question, but no, no, it's not. It's a great question. I I have thought about that, and I remember when when Trump was president, people would say, "Well, if he just if he just drank ayahuasca, you know, uh, if and that that idea kind of circulates too. Like someone was holding up a sign during the protests and riots over the summer, like uh, cops need to do ayahuasca, and it's like. I mean, I don't know, man. Like, I tend to think that these are nonspecific amplifiers, you know? Like, if Trump drank ayahuasca, it would probably just be like, oh, my God, I had the greatest vision. We're going to make America even greater. I purge better than anybody, baby. Um, but, like, it's, you know, it, yeah, it's going to let, it's, it's, uh, what does Cho Young Trumpa say? Uh, the, um, the enlightenment is ego's ultimate, uh, ultimate, um, uh, what? Oh shit! I forgot how the quote goes. We're gonna have to edit this out. But it's essentially anything can be converted to ego's use. Anything, the the most profound, beautiful, spiritual, enlightened experience you've ever had in your life, could somehow become converted to your own, you know, ego projection and 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 materialist kind of way of of living and partially part part of that is the environment which we find ourselves in a lot of us are you know we're like water we take the shape of the container that we live in and with this certain kind of crony capitalist you know state run big bank empire of you know never end always we're always going up and things are always getting bigger and better and we're expanding more we can't keep that going but that's the that's the environment that 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 I think we have to enter into. I mean, that is the environment because that is part of the reality. Um, so I think that just to answer your question, as soon as the, as soon as we think that we have arrived somewhere, we we're tricking ourselves. As soon as we think that we're uh, a part of, uh, you know, that, that we're like a part of some special mission or cause, or that we are, um, you know, people tell uh, us that we're great and how good we are. And as soon as we start identifying with that, then what happens is naturally there's a hierarchy that starts to get formed and um, there's all kinds of abuses of power that then come with that. And you, you sort of lose the point. I think, you know, I think, I don't think the point is to um, say that there is a truth with a capital T forever and ever and ever. Although I kind of do think that there is, but I think that the truth forever and ever with a capital T is that there really is none. And that it is that we are constantly forming agreements with each other and negotiations and contracts with each other to form some kind of general consensus reality. Um, and it's messy. And a lot of the times uh, it gets lost in, the, in a lot of the projections of the ego. Um, but I, but, but more speaking more to that, my feeling is that we are, um, infinite beings having a finite experience. Uh, everything is temporary. Nothing is permanent. Everything is constantly changing, decaying, and then growing again. 
you know? Um, and th- it's a constant fluidity and state of flux and really to play with the chorus of that, you know, to play with nature, to, to, to engage in biomimicry, if you will, right? Like the, 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 the natural creative destruction, infinite yin yang of the universe is to, um, try and, and, and play with the chords, with the melody. I think as soon as we start to think that we can be above it or take over, right? Like if you go see an orchestra perform and, and one trumpeter just decides he's going to have a solo in the middle of this symphony, uh, it's going to kind of, you know, ruin things if it wasn't like a planned event or, or something like that. So, uh, I, so I think it's, it's this, we, we build, truth with every choice we make with every purchase we make with every action we take with every way that we talk our tone uh how we how we are with each other and we just do this forever and ever in all kinds of forms but uh but one this is for certain here and we might as well try and live with some kind of acceptance of the fact that uh you know, that this is a, a gift and that it's impermanent. I don't know. Now I feel like I'm just rambling, but that's, that's pretty much, you know, how I feel, I guess. And I could get, I could talk about this for like two hours straight probably, but that's kind of the, the, the core of it, I think. Mm-hmm. What do you, cause it, it seems like a lot of the things we've been touching on are really becoming exacerbated in a way with the, the current situation we're in, in the world with, with the, the pandemic, a lot of these things of, of fear of, of giving up our liberties of moving towards a central centralized control. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure you thought a lot about this, but uh, what do you, what do you see that that this is is leading towards? Is it do you do you feel it's it's just a, a natural progression of the way things have been moving and it's just becoming heightened now? Or like what do you I guess what are your feelings about it and, and where do you see all of this leading to? Yeah, most definitely it's a natural progression because if you look at the dawn of civilization as we know it, you know, it was a way to keep uh, slaves working in one place and provide them with everything that they needed so that they would stay there so they wouldn't rummage, you know, go travel around in hunter-gatherer bands and tribes. Um, so if you can control uh, the food supply and take care of people's basic, you know, uh, security with, uh, with things of that nature, then we're going to build a great empire. We're going to build great civilizations. But what what is that all... What, what's the point? Who are we building this? Where are we going? What are we trying to do? If not incorporating the ideas of total human liberation, freedom, which, uh, which liberates people into an infinite field of diversity and novelty and, and newness. I love other cultures and languages and peoples and foods and traditions and what I'm seeing is um, this, uh, you know, sort of global empire of hegemony uh, taking shape uh, with with the top, you know, one percent of um, people that are in positions of power around the world that simply are just functioning as cogs in a machine to their own uh, interests uh, to serve the perverse incentive systems that we have been on this kind of automatic 
um, treadmill or, you know, of, uh, of, of perverse incentive systems where it's worth more money to, you know, get rid of the whole rainforest so that we can make it, make something out of it. Right. And it's like, not to say that we shouldn't chop down a tree to make a house if you need a house, but there needs to be some kind of reciprocity, some kind of ebb and flow, some kind of balance. And I think that's really what I hope we can learn because if we don't learn that where we're going to go, we're all just, we're just, we want to just get back to unity you know, like everybody wants to get back to the one. Everyone wants to go to the non-dual sp- space where we're all connected and we're all one. So we're either going to get there uh, in a non-human, um, transhumanist android world, and uh, th- there, there we go. We'll be that, or we'll blow ourselves up and we'll get back to one that way, or we'll all get back to one by uh, real, like having more of uh, plant medicine, liberty philosophy infuse and take over into uh, more of a mass appeal that we can learn, oh, we can actually all kind of steer this ship. And if we're just kind of cool and we don't, you know, be assholes, <laughs> that we can kind of move forward in in a way that's really, that would really be re- really revolutionary. Uh, maybe like we've never seen before, maybe close to a utopian air quotes kind of society because utopia really means like no place it's not really but to strive towards that thing i think that's that's the thing too is that we have this desire to strive towards something right and the sort of the the technocratic uh, oligarchs of the world they um uh will always communicate in a way of we're doing it and we're going to get there and we're going to be the best and we're going to win and you know, the future is going to be bright because we're going to have Amazon delivery drones that are just going to come and feed you your food and your face and vaccinate you. So you don't have to even get up and move. Everything's going to be efficient and orderly. Uh, but, you know, we do that. We lose our humanity. And who do we become? We become Darth Vader, the man who is now the machine serving an empire of death and destruction. And uh, and that's not where I want to be. I know that's not where you want to be. So how do we, you know, steer the ship in the, in, in the other direction? Um, you know, I think it's by everybody tending to the part of the garden that they can touch, as Jack Cornfield says, you know, reaching into our local communities, our local networks, and, 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 um, and doing our own work to confront the fears and the doubts and the blockages inside of us so that when we show up, we show up fully present and fully clear, ready to serve, ready to give. Um, yeah, I think, uh, so sort of three different directions there, you know, one is let's keep all the cool technology that we are developing and let's have technology that serves us and we don't serve it and a world with plant medicine and there's no more war on drugs and no war. And we could really have a really cool world if we go that direction the other one is we just can't get out of this mess and we just blow ourselves to smithereens and literally wipe everyone off the face of the planet with a nuclear holocaust or we just become transhuman and we live in virtual augmented environments and we get neural implants and um that you know who knows what the hell that'll look like some kind of cyberpunk dystopia which is i think where we're kind of we're like oscillating between things, but it, in the mainstream, it seems to be kind of the, the pervasive idea 
technology of our time seems to be that technology is going to liberate us. Only technology is going to liberate us. Um, so yeah, that's kind yeah. of where I think we're at. You, you had mentioned your, one of the things you're working on is this decriminalization of, is it psilocybin in, in Colorado? Do you, you, you mentioned this idea that you see that that's maybe one of the paths forward to kind of counterbalance some of this stuff uh, in, in what way and, and, and how is that coming along and, and how do you see things shaping in, in these next years? Yeah, so we uh, decriminalized psilocybin in the city and county of Denver in May of 2019, uh, and most recently, my friend, uh, my friends Travis and Kevin are who led that campaign, uh, will be reigniting uh, a new campaign for 2022 to decriminalize nature uh, for all of Colorado, and we even talked about. Um, uncriminalization because it's a that's a whole a whole different kind of thing right it's like if it were never to have been to, to you know so so basically right now the, the way that the laws work in denver is there is no money that is being used to arrest people for psilocybin there's no, there are no money and resources dedicated to uh psilocybin mushroom uh, types of activities, which is great, right? Because if you think about money as energy, as a transfer of energy, there's literally no energy now for this battery that was once operating to operate. Uh, and I think we, we won that because of uh, amazing people on the ground, just regular people who came out and supported this and went door to door and asked people what they thought about this measure. Uh, and education, people coming out of the psychedelic closet, first of all, and saying, hey, I've used mushrooms and they've been very helpful for me and here's my story, um, right? And so those are really powerful to hear those personal stories and those transformations and those healing journeys. And what we've seen after decriminalization in Denver is people being, having this, you know, when we talk about set and setting, right? It's like you want to be you want to be in the right mindset and you want to be in the right setting to to have a uh, a successful and safe as safe as safe as possible uh, psychedelic journey um, or entheogenic journey. And um, but there's always whether you realize it or not, there's always that little unconscious knowledge that what you're doing is considered a criminal act, and now, what I've noticed in Denver is that that has been released. That, you know, Lorenzo Haggerty, who hosts a great show, The Psychedelic Salon, uh, told me his story about when he first did MDMA for the first time, which changed his life and made him on this like psychedelic path. And he did it because it was legal. He just, he was just the kind of guy that wasn't going to break the law, you know? And with Michael Pollan's book, I've seen so many people over the age of 45, 50 coming out and being like, hey, this is really interesting. My parents, even my dad just sent me an article the other day. Hey, they're talking about mushrooms and how they can be good for depression in the New York Times, just like you've been saying for years. I'm like, well, yeah, but now it's finally coming to him in his reality tunnel uh, it's, it's, it's able to get in there and it's able to communicate in a language that he understands and verbiage that he understands. And that's really what it's all about is meeting people where they are 
Just like, you know, with, uh, we had this organization veterans for natural rights during the campaign, and they were such a huge force behind helping push this measure forward to decriminalize psilocybin because of their, their message to the part of the community that is more resonant with hearing things from that perspective, from the veteran perspective, from the libertarian perspective, from maybe the, the right-wing conservative perspective. Everybody, this is for human beings, for all human beings. So it's figuring out the puzzle of how it is communicated in a way that hits home for people and they can understand. And that all comes with the education. And you know, shout out to people like Dr. Carl Hart for coming out of the drug closet, for writing that book. Um, drug use for, for grownups, finding liberty in the land of fear for people like Hamilton Morris or people like yourself. You know, it's like these are the ways in which we lube the gears and get people to understand that this is about education, this is about healing, this is about freedom, freedom of choice, this is about sovereignty. And this is a very American idea. This is a very, um, you know, United States idea. And, um, and so uh, we, we hope to, uh, you know, work really hard to, to spread that message and to, again, be the, um, the leaders and the pioneers for liberty and for ending the war on drugs and for cognitive liberty in uh, the United States and the West. Um, so, yeah, very much looking forward to that. Uh, and I'll just say one more thing. I forgot to mention uh, the idea since this fear has been released and now psilocybin is decriminalized more and more people are interested in learning how to cultivate and how to grow. Uh, and myself included, I've done some things before, but I've really learned now how to cultivate my own supply for personal use uh, of psilocybin mushrooms and really, you know, test them and ensure their safety and their potency and their pureness and imbue them with my energy and, and singing to them and, putting crystals in the tents and things of this, this nature, everybody is now empowered to really fully understand from nose to tail, from soil to soul, how we can, um, how these things can help us. And when you have a personal relationship with it, you're empowered. And when you're educated, you're empowered. And then when you're empowered, you're free. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's what's going on over here. And we're, we're super excited to be launching it in 2022 statewide. Yeah. Beautiful. <clears throat> do you think, do you think that's going to be the way of it is through decriminalization or uncriminalization uh, starting with things like psilocybin? I mean, it's already with, with marijuana, psilocybin, maybe eventually ayahuasca, iboga, other things. Do you, do you think that's, that will be the way of it? Or do you think also with this idea of liberty and religious freedom that, you know, more and more churches are popping up, or do you think those two things will just kind of run congruent and, uh, you know, maybe as churches become more common, it will start to become more decriminalized. Do you have any, any sense of the direction that's moving? Yeah. So I, I know that, um, one of the big components of this 2022 initiative is also to give access for therapists, uh, to give uh, psychotherapists, um, you know, to make this a, a thing that can that can be uh, above ground, because there's so many people that want to experience 
these altered states, these non-ordinary states that psilocybin can provide and that ayahuasca can provide and that iboga can provide and that all these medicines can provide. However, they don't know anything about it and they would like to have a guide. And we know the power of having a guide and we know the power of having a facilitator in there. And there's so many people that are getting into uh, the field of psychology um, uh, transpersonal psychology and uh, even um, like our our buddy Sean, cognitive behavioral uh, and and so CBT that there's there's a fusion here, you know, sort of what I was talking about with the um, you know the plant medicines and and technology kind of world. There's also a fusion here of you know psychology and uh, somatic therapy, and so that is a, a going to be a big part of the initiative is is granting access to these things so that, that these people who want to get this help with these guides and with these therapists and these trained professionals can get access to do that. And as far as the, the churches, um, I don't know too much about that, to be honest. Uh, but I do just kind of have an intuition that when you start saying church and psychedelics, that the average person kind of doesn't, is I don't necessarily know if they're quite ready for that yet. It's almost like, uh, like Marty McFly and Back to the Future playing Van Halen in the fifties. Like I, I don't know if they're quite ready for this one yet, but their kids are going to love it. <laughs> but I do, I, I don't see any issue with that though. I think that that's we have the right to explore whatever sort of beliefs that we have as as long as they're causing no harm to anybody else. So, and and these things are deeply spiritual, deeply connected to uh, our belief systems, and deeply rooted in in biblical stories. Uh, several, several people, Tom, uh, Hassis, who I had on the show and, um, Danny Namu, among many others, draw comparisons, Brian Maruscu, uh, the immortality key, you know, the, 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 these are, uh, you know, holy sacraments and regarded as such by many of the great civilizations and great societies over time, just like the Greeks with the Lucis and throughout time. So uh, that's a good question. I, I would have to see what that would be like. I know there's like the Church of Cannabis and places like that around, uh, but I have to take a look and see what what else is going on and sort of the church aspect because that's uh, an integral part to it as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, it seems like also with with just the, the advent of the internet and this this proliferation of information, I mean, my sense is anyone who's who's really gone deep into these plants can begin to see the parallels of, of how all religion at its root was probably working with these substances. And, and that's been that's been brought to light in many religions. I mean, most likely Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, certainly, you know, all the shamanic religions, uh, Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, and and yes, even now yeah. more and more probably Christianity as well, uh, because again Christianity was was just an evolution of, of of Greek mystery schools, of Egyptian mystery schools. So that seems like it's going to be a real kind of shift, and and I'm I'm curious how people will take that. I mean, I'm sure in the beginning there will be some resistance, but it seems like with anything, I mean, as more and more evidence and more scholars begin to look at it that that's really going to change kind of humanity that we see that this was an integral part. Uh, I mean, just think of, you know, how big of, of a role religion plays in people's lives, things like Christianity, Islam, um, 
you know. Well, think about it like this. Louis C.K. said this the other day. I was watching, uh, I, uh, I still love him, you know. I, I never bought into the whole cancel, Louis. Fuck that. But uh, there was like an old special uh, that I, didn't, I hadn't seen. And he goes, he goes, well, think about it like this. What year are we in? <laughs> and, and it's like, uh, people are like, 2017? He's like, yeah, 2017 what? <laughs> you know? So to say Christianity has influence is uh, is an understatement, <laughs> but but yeah, uh, didn't mean to cut you off there. Just wanted to throw that in, of like how powerful these things are, these ideas are. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, if that gets more and more accepted, it, it seems like you know it could really be an explosion. And, and I think that's kind of the point you're alluding to is, you know, if these things are able to to really become part of of culture and and re rediscovering these traditions that that every culture has, uh, that that really can potentially shape or reshape uh, the direction we we move in as as civilizations. Definitely. So I I was on your podcast uh, twice. And so your podcast is called Mycadelics and yes, how, how, I mean, that's, that's a big part of your life now. I mean, that's like, I don't know, one, if not, you know, your main job that you're doing, how is that kind of, how did that start and how has that evolved to, to, to where it's at now? And what has that journey been like for you? Cause you've, you've got to, you know, interview all sorts of people and I'm sure that's kind of helped your own evolution and your own thinking. And what's, what has that process been like for you? Yeah, man. Um, it's, uh, it's been a ride, man. It's been a ride, you know, cause it's like the show is me. It's a part of me. So as I evolve or I change the show changes. Um, and I think initially it started in one direction and then it kind of became something that's kind of started with like this fusion of, of the ideas of, of Liberty and, and, and psychedelics and really kind of trying to kind of push that message forward. Um, yeah, so the the evolution of the podcast is uh, with the evolution of myself, and um, so you know, it, it's like I I feel like I've been learning out loud in a way, you know, um, and uh, now I'm at a point where I don't know, I just I I, I guess I I feel comfortable now having accumulated and, and really educated myself on a lot of the things that I, uh, was talking about before where I feel comfortable kind of, uh, holding it all, uh, and, and looking at it in, in a comedic lens, uh, as much as possible. So I'm still doing Mikeadelic. I'm still doing that show. I actually just had Beth Weinstein on, um, and she's great. She's awesome to talk to. And uh, so I'm still going to have people on the show. And then I have a new show that's the working title is Dosadelic because it's two of us and it's like a dose and psychedelic and all that stuff. But uh, I don't know. We might change the title of it. Um, but it's just it's such a great outlet for me to just be really silly and really play with a lot of things and not really attach too much to... I used to get really angry, like Mikeadelic. I would get really fired up, you know. I'd be, I'd be like, why can't we, you know, these fucking people, and they don't get it and they don't see. And I'm trying not to, 
well, I'm not trying. I, I, I've sort of integrated a lot of that darkness or that anger into more of a holistic kind of uh, approach uh, of, of who I really am as a person. And I, I hope that comes out in the new show and the new podcast that I put out because uh, sometimes it's difficult. You know, you do one thing and people try to label you as that one thing, but you know, we're all, we all have so many dimensions to our personality. You know, I mean, you're, you're funny and you have a podcast and you do plant medicine work and you're a tobacco and you are uh, involved with a lot of martial arts and, you know, many things, there's many things to you. Um, and so there's many things to me and I, and I just, I didn't know how to uh, hold them all and kind of enter into the grand show uh, being all of these things at once. And I, I feel that I feel a lot more, uh, settled in, in who I am now for sure. And I'm able, and that's able to come forth in, in the show, hopefully. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So with, with the new podcast, Dosadelic, how do you, how do you integrate comedy into that? Is it just something where you're, you're just kind of flowing with the, the co-host or you, you have like some specific topic you're working on with each episode? How do you, how do you foresee that panning out? Yeah. So the way that I explained it to my co-host, I was like, uh, I was like, Hey Matt, I think we discovered the formula for the show. Basically I'm an insane person who just got let out of a mental institution in a padded room for like, uh, I have like two hours of time that I'm out and you're my handler. And, and, and I just, you know, obviously jokingly, but like, it's really just me kind of ranting and going off about things. And then he's there to kind of, you know, bring me back a little bit and, uh, and, and we're, we're, we're enjoying it. It's really, it's really silly. It's really juvenile. A lot of times, you know, there's a lot of like, but that's what the fun part about it is, you know, is that I'm, I'm able to, um, you know, one of my friends that listened to it said, this is fucking great, man, because you can like quote Nietzsche and then make a fart joke in the same sentence and it works. And I'm like, great. Like that's, that's, that's great. Like, I, I love that. So so yeah, that's kind of the thing. And and we have a couple episodes out right now on the Mycadelic main Mycadelic feed. Um, most of them are on Patreon right now. So for my Patreon people, patreon.com slash Mike Brank. And, um, and then uh, we'll probably do a full show launch as a totally new separate show in the summer at some point. Mm. Yeah, great, man. You, you mentioned in the, in the message exchange that you're doing some men's work. How, how would you describe that? What is, what is that about? Uh, basically just, you know, hammering stuff, um, <laughs> chopping trees down. No, uh, I'm, uh, uh, got my Paul Bunyan outfit on here in, in the Colorado wilderness, but yeah, it's something that I got into my friend, Bill Burns, who I had on the show a couple of times, he ran, he uh, started this project called Connection Council during the pandemic um, around sometime around this time last year. And he was like, look, I think we should just like all come together, you know, group of guys and, and talk about things. And, and at first I was pretty resistant to it because I was just like, um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm myself all the time. I, I don't feel like I'm ever really hiding anything, but it wasn't really about that. What it, what it really became about for me was a sense of, uh, like brotherhood and fellowship, um, community, um, you know, learning, there's some older guys in the group and, um, you know, learning from them and, and, uh, 
you know, the value of creating an intentional space, right. Which is so important. Um, and creating that intentional space. So, you know, uh, I read this book, Iron John by Robert Bly, uh, a few years back and it really impacted me. And, um, just the idea of, you know, men, there's a lot of men and I was one at various points in my life where I was like a, uh, like an incel, you know, like I was like a, um, a shut in, um, where I, I just, uh, was a recluse who was lo- felt lonely and isolated and, um, that I felt like I couldn't really function in the world. There was no place for me and, and there was no community for me. And if I wanted to have friends, I had to go out and drink alcohol and, you know, there was, I felt stuck and I, I felt like I couldn't really be a healthy version of the man that I thought that I could be or think that I could be. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people out there and I think it's an epidemic, you know, um, we hear, we always hear about like these shootings that happen. Right. And, and it's like these, these, these lonely white men and, you know, they're on pills they're on this and they go crazy and they shoot people and, you know, it's like, what kind of society are we living in where this kind of thing is, is happening? And it's not just that, but it's all kinds of things. Right. And it's like, you know, there's obviously, there's a great push to raise women up and raise all, raise everybody up. But for some reason, you know, it's men, it's just, Oh, you're a man. Or if you're white, if you're single, if you're a single white cis male, you're the worst, you know? And that's not, what does that say? Like to people, in the world. It's like to those people, we should be saying, Hey, we're sorry. We want, we want to create a place for you. We want to integrate. We want to get a healthy version of masculinity, because I think that if we have a healthy version of masculinity in the world, you know, this sort of the gardener that keeps his sword sheath, but who's ready to go, you know, this, the sort of that sort of ethos of, of, of really fully embodying everything that it is to be a human being and then showing up as a man in this environment to um, that we could really do a lot of uh, really great things and change the environment in which we live in. Because right now, most of the men that are in power, most of the people that are in power haven't had initiation rights, rites of passage to uh, make them worthy of holding the, uh, the, 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 the true sort of morals and values of, of what a actual true kind of society would be. So that's the work. And, and like I said, it's really about this brotherhood aspect, especially as you get into your thirties and, and older, you know, there's this sort of, um, like cliched stereotype of like the single lonely man that like goes to the supermarket and buys a microwave dinner and, you know, the couch potato guy and all this stuff. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we can make, you can make friends at any age. And and so I want to be a part of bringing more of that forward. And, and so a couple of my friends and I are going to be starting a retreat uh, series that we're going to be launching. Um, that's really going to focus on a kind of primal sort of aspect to male masculinity that we don't necessarily see encouraged or at least not in a healthy way. Um, because I think that there is like a violent and dangerous element as you know, like you know, with, with martial arts and things, I think that's 
if I could speak for you, I think that's why you kind of like to, you get that energy out and move. And there's a lot of th- lessons that you can learn from that. So that's what that work is about. And, and, um, and also for younger kids too, because when I was a young kid, I was totally lost. Um, at age 13, you know, 14, I went the path of being a, a real um, degenerate, you know, like, because I just didn't have anybody in my life to say, hey, you can be strong, you can be tough, you can be vulnerable, you can be real, and you can also be a good person, and they all can come together. I I didn't have that. I had no direction. I had no rites of passage. I had no initiation. And so, you know, uh, we, there's a when you don't have that, you just get a bunch of, um, you know, undeveloped uh, man, man children walking around. And uh, you got to, you know, you got to clean your room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting yeah. because I was um, I was asked to run uh, a men's workshop a number of years ago, uh, like a, an ayahuasca workshop, and it didn't really resonate. Uh, I mean, I didn't really know what that would look like, and it, it's interesting because at the temple where I've worked, they they ran women's workshops, and and that seemed to have a, a very clear idea of, of what the needs were and how that would work. Um, but it's been interesting because in the last, uh, I'd say just maybe in the last year or two, I felt that there is more of a need for that. And I, I feel maybe kind of fortunate of how I grew up because I I was involved in Boy Scouts and that's when it was still for boys, (laughs) you know, now it's, uh, anyone can join, but you know, that was a beautiful thing. Like there was a bonding there. There was like this brotherly aspect of, of being around, you know, similarly aged boys. There was, it was goal driven, you know, it taught you real skills, like how to start fires, how to hunt, how to camp, how to live in the wild, like, you know, how to do like, even like things like, so how to fix things, how to, you know, do things that were actually considered really good in, in a boy's developmental period. And then getting into martial arts, I always felt, you know, that's also, you know, any gender can join, but it, it tends to be predominantly men. And that always felt like a brotherhood too. And, and there is something about that. And, you know, you use this idea of kind of like getting out violence and aggression. And, you know, it's something that where I think I've also begun to see it's become more important, um, Maybe I'll put a link to this article, but uh, it was it was written by this guy, Jacques, who's the head of Takiwasi, which is a really big plant medicine center. Mm. And he was kind of alluding towards, you know, this idea of like ayahuasca and this more feminine aspect. And the article was actually on tobacco and how it embodies a lot more of these masculine qualities and how a lot of these things are actually severely lacking now in the society that we live in. And, and I think, you know, you can see that in, in the threads of so many things of, as you were saying, you know, this idea of of trying to lift other people up, but maybe forgetting about men or, you know, these ideas of like toxic masculinity or, you know, you read stories of like a kid draws a gun in school and he's, he's like grounded by his female teacher because that's a violent behavior. 
you know, and these really, I think, unhealthy ideas of, of trying to enforce what it means to be a man. And um, I think, you know, even that, that kind of your final joke, like that's, I think, why people like Jordan Peterson are also becoming so popular. Uh, I think that's why mixed martial arts is becoming insanely popular is because men, you know, <laughs> whatever we want to believe, you know, we were talking about truth. One of the truths is that men and women are different from a literal definition it's two different words it's two different biologies it's 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 something that's literally it's what allows the world to exist because we have men and we have women and when those two combine we have life we have creation that cannot exist if we don't have polarity if we don't have men and women and it does seem like a lot of the direction we're moving in society is really getting away from like what it means to be a man and and these qualities that I think have been taught, which of course taken to an extreme can be bad, you know, physical strength. If taken to the extreme where it's used as violence, that's bad. But if it's used as protection, then it's a good thing. You know, even like we were talking about socialism, like at the end of the day that, you know, putting the responsibility on someone to enforce your beliefs, who's gonna enforce it? Men with guns, <laughs> you know, that's right. the reality. And, right. uh, you know, so it does seem like in many ways we're, we're beginning to lack those things. You know, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to embody the, that strength, that stability, the, these kind of classic archetypes, the, the groundedness, the clarity, the, you know, even that kind of idea of the, 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 the silent stoic man, you know, there's, of course, taken to an extreme, it can be bad, but there's a value in that like the centeredness, the groundedness, the, when the world is in chaos, like what is, what is that pillar that stands strong on principle and is able to put mm -hmm. order in things? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that, that's a really, that's a really important thing and, and something we're severely lacking. And, and I think, uh, you know, that that's really great. You're doing that. Cause I, I think that's more needed. And also, as you said, you know, with the pandemic, I mean, yeah, having kids inside isolated, not with their friends on the computer all day, you know, it's, it's, it's devastating to, yeah. to not be able to be physical, to, to embody that physicality. I mean, it, it was really interesting. And this is where, you know, even talking about like the, the founding of America, one thing I, I found so beautiful and I still find beautiful is these, these principles that it was founded upon these, these ideas of the founding fathers, which are as relevant today as they ever were. I mean, you read any of those quotes and it's like, wow, they seems like they were alive today. Like they were speaking to our time. Yeah. But one of the things that, that really influenced them and other enlightenment thinkers was this idea of looking to nature to find truth. And it, it was interesting because I adopted a cat a while back and, you know, uh, she had all these babies and, all they do all day is they either they they suckle or breast, they drink milk, they sleep, and if they're not doing those two things, the rest of the day is they're wrestling. That's all they do. <laughs> you know, they're fighting with each other and they're learning boundaries. They're they're learning. Okay, if I bite this cat too hard, he's going to bite me back. I'm going to bite my mother's tail. If I bite it too hard, she's going to smack me and teach me. Like, no, that's too much. You know, like these boundaries are really important. And I, I gave one of the the cats away early, kind of again my better judgment and this cat like 
it didn't have those boundaries. It would bite people. It like, it wouldn't listen to people. It would just kind of do what it wanted. All of the cats that I kept that grew up with each other, they're like model cats, you know, they, they know their boundaries. They, they respect people and they're these amazing hunters, you know, they all mm-hmm. know how to hunt. Why? Cause their mother taught them that like, and so it's, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, maybe a bit of a rant too, but I, I do think, you know, it really shifted in me too from a few years ago where I didn't see the point in that. I, I guess I just didn't really understand what that was doing. And more and more, it seems like something that's, that's really vital in these times. Yeah. And like, I was super resistant to it at first and my friend had created this group and I was like, get the fuck out like men's work what is this shit like i don't need that but then i slowly realized that it's like oh usually the thing that we resist the most or judge the most maybe we you know maybe i should take a look at it because i found out how beneficial it was once i got rid of all the preconceived notions and judgment and actually got to the the root of it like we had a retreat and a couple months ago and we did a silent uh team snowshoe hike and we had to get to a particular location without talking uh but we could communicate with like hand gestures and things like that and we were in snowshoes and like three feet of snow in the colorado mountains and it was like it was so cool it was so cool to have a a quest a mission something that come together with other men you know there's this great book tribe by sebastian younger um where he i think was with a battalion in Afghanistan and he writes about the, the 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 need for tribe the need for community the tight knit bonds when you're in it when you're in the shit with other people when you got to get something accomplished and you're working with others in that in that way and how it's different when you have this kind of you know group of men all together in a in a common purpose and you know, um, yeah, I, I grew up with two brothers and I have like male cousins and stuff. And when we get together, it's, 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 you know, it's body. It's, it's, there's, it's, there's chaotic. There's, uh, there's, you know, inappropriate things and all that kind of stuff. But we, we kind of need that. That's kind of who we are at a core level. Same thing with this show that I'm doing, Dosadelic it's raunchy and it's juvenile, but there's an element of that, that it's contained for that environment. And it's something that is just a part of my nature. And I think that if we can start to recognize that men need to sort of have these areas to get these things out, to move this energy, to work together, to not be alone, to be able to say, Hey, I'm struggling. And Hey, I'm struggling too. And Hey, I, I got your back, bro. If you need, you know, whatever you need, like you can, you can lean on me. You have a shoulder to lean on. Um, we're not meant to be in these isolated boxes and these right angle houses stocked, stacked upon houses and apartments struggling through our human experience solely alone with the burden on our shoulders. And this is the, we don't need the government to come in and, and, and interfere either, but we as individuals, as individual people, can spontaneously self-organize in voluntary ways and support each other if that's what we care to do. Uh, and I find it extremely, extremely valuable and, and transformative. Mm-hmm. With, with the comedy, do you, because obviously, you know, one of the things with COVID is so many things have been shut down. Comedy stores have been shut down. 
you know, and, and it even seems we're now moving in this direction where potentially to go to a public event, you may need to show proof of vaccination, proof of a negative COVID test. Do you think, do you think that's going to affect comedy that that's just going to make it kind of undoable or it's going to change comedy where people are going to start performing outdoors? Or do you think comedy is moving now towards these more virtual experiences where it is a guy like you sitting in front of a mic or Tim Dillon, you mentioned him. I know he's, he's really uh, kind of going in that direction where it's just, that's going to be how comedy is now, you know, because a, a lot of, even what we were talking about with comedy is I know with a lot of comedians, I mean, they, they made it very public as many of them don't want to perform in front of many groups now because their comedy is seen as inappropriate. You know, many comics, for example, have said they don't want to perform in universities anymore because they their jokes are seen as politically incorrect, which is the exact point of comedy as we were talking about. So do you have any sense of, of the direction comedy is is going to be moving in? Yeah, great question. And I just want to say one more thing to that point of the point of comedy. It really goes back such a long ways. Uh, I was recently listening to an Alan Watts talk that reminded me of this, where he talked about the role of the Joker, the role of the court jester. It was a, it was this vital role to keep balance in the kingdom because he could be the one to reveal the truth to the king without the king wanting to chop his head off. And as soon as the king decided to chop the jester's head off or the, the court jester's head off, then you knew that you're in trouble. Uh, and, you know, for societies that have these, these that don't allow for uh, mockery and humor and satire, they become insane societies. And, and so it's very dangerous. Uh, we have to be able to laugh at ourselves. We have to be able to realize the absurd nature that we find ourselves in. Uh, so many times down at, at the temple in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, the, the ayahuasca center that we were at, you know, I, I, there were so many moments of just pure laughter and joy. And it's this moment of like remembering you know, I always felt it of this moment of we're all remembering together and how funny is it to remember together uh, and share in that laughter or coming back from a ceremony and just hearing the loud cackling laughter of the healers, uh, you know, as we walk by in the under the moonlit starry sky. And it's like, man, that's magical. You know, the Pinaha people, they're laughing because the guy's house fell over. They're laughing. They get the absurdity. So it's crucial. It's vital. Um, and I think that comedians have been inter interject one at one point, because I think that's really important. And I think probably a lot of people don't realize, like in many countries, comedy, you know, this idea of speech of being able to say what you want is actually illegal. You know, there's many countries where there are topics that you are not allowed uh, to, to bring up. You, you can't make right. fun of, of, of a royal family. You can't make fun of, of the prince or the, you know, the crown prince or certain political institutions. Like you, it's punishable by death. And, yeah. you know, that's so comedy in that, in that regards, it also goes along with this idea of freedom of speech, you know, freedom to express ourselves, which, you know, I think is something that's coming up that, that many people have taken for granted and we don't realize like why that's so important. And I think that that point you made with the, the, the King's jesters is, is so, so perfect. And what you made earlier, 
the the comedian was often uh you know the clown or the fool which was often synonymous with the shaman you know so kind of mm-hmm. tying these things back i mean the shaman served a certain role it was to cut through your beliefs, the things that you thought to be true or real, his job was to cut those down. And he was often seen as someone who was crazy because he didn't believe what you believed. You know, he always Mm -hmm. lived on the outside of the village. You know, he was kind of the loner. He was the one who did everything in the incorrect way, the way everyone else didn't do it. But there was a method to his madness and he was trying to, you know, literally shake people up, shake them out of their their ways of doing things to be able to look at things from a new perspective. So, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. That, no, that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you nailed it. Yeah, exactly. Because because it's we live in the realm of duality in this in this, you know, finite game that we find ourselves in called the, this human experience, this incarnation of this time. And, you know, just like we need men and women to give birth to new beings. We need the insiders and the outsiders to work in harmony together to give birth to new ideas and new ways of being. You know, the the, the outsider in full, can see things that the insider can't see. If you're part of a society, a team, a group, a religion, uh, whatever it is, if you can't tolerate outside opinions, jokes, suggestions, anything, and you see that as 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 a threat, well, that's a big problem, right? Like you can't draw the Prophet Muhammad, right? Remember that whole Charlie Hebdo thing? You know, it's like, well, that that clearly seems pretty insane, right? And so, what are we going to just cower in fear because other people are threatening us with force, violence, and coercion uh, because they can't tolerate the absurdity of of life? Well, a healthy society would tolerate that absurdity because they could find the value in the outsider, uh, the man that lives outside the village that does everything incorrect, like you said. There's a value to be found if we can only listen. And he gets value or she gets value from the, the insider society as well. But we need those perspectives. We need those other eyes, those outsider's eyes, those uh, beginner's mind, child's mind type view, right? Um, same thing with like the, the Zen master who, you know, you want to know about Zen and he just starts, he says, pour me a cup of tea and don't stop. And it's just overflowing in the cup. And it's, what's that all about? Well, figure it out and we'll find out together, you know? And so, so, uh, so yeah, uh, I think that a healthy way to have, uh, that be a part of our world means that we're going to have, um, we're going to have a much better time of coexisting with each other and we're going to learn a lot. And I think um, there's been a lot of standups that have been doing comedy outdoors and in all kinds of different ways. Um, and we'll see what it's like, but I'll tell you, uh, you know, this, this vaccine passport thing and um, these kinds of restriction things. Uh, I said it from the beginning uh, when this whole thing started, but that, that is definitely, it's definitely a hill that I'm willing to die on. Um, because I, uh, don't, uh, I don't necessarily, uh, subscribe to the idea that if I'm not participating in the same thing that everybody else is participating in, that I'm going to be causing some kind of harm to others if I'm taking care of myself and I'm not active, you know, so I, uh, I, I, I'm, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, you know, revolutionary times and, and change, it's always messy. 
it's always uh, difficult. Um, but uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully we can um, allow the comedians to uh, come back into the fold and that we can all laugh together more at things and laugh at the absurdity of things. But we got to get rid of the fear too to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's, that's again, like that's a natural progression of how things are been moving or do you think, do you think there's, there's something specifically that, that we're dealing with that's, that's, that's making comics feel that they can't say what they want, like they can't perform in a university or they, they, they have to do their own thing. Um, like, what do you, do you think, or maybe, do you think that's something that's just specific to comedy or it's just something at large that everyone is dealing with right now? Well, I think the beauty of comedy is saying the things that you're not supposed to say, right? It's revealing the truth that nobody wants to reveal or articulating things in a way that people have felt deep inside, right? Like that's like that, that guttural laughter that is undeniable that comes uh, it's not coming because you thought about, is it appropriate to laugh at this or not? It's coming because you know, deep down in your soul that you feel something and somebody just put it into words and transferred the, you know, the, the, their emotions and their feeling and their language to you. And you're like, okay, this is funny. Now I'm, I'm sort of, my borders, my boundaries are dissolving a little bit. It's easier to kind of, uh, feel okay in an environment that can seem really scary and really frightening, but because we're all laughing together, maybe it's not. And maybe we're all feeling that same thing, you know, but yeah, there, that you have to have the freedom to be able to express yourself in whichever way that you, um, uh, do. And, uh, that leads to ingenuity and innovation and um, cross-pollination and collaboration and, and cooperation. Uh, because when we hold back what we think and what we feel, we uh, create, you know, this sort of like pressure and this, these confines and constrictions within us, which lead to dis-ease in our bodies and our minds. And then we're second guessing everything that we're thinking and we're feeling and then we're not aligned and we're not showing up in truth we don't know who the hell we are and everything's a mess and if you can't be free to to speak anything and i mean anything and especially with comedy because you have to take risks you know on my last podcast I, i talked about how robert plant was secretly having sex with an octopus at the bottom of the sea. Stupid, silly, right? But I could see someone getting offended by that. And I, I even put that into the joke. And it's like, it's like, I don't mean that. I'm just being silly. I'm be I'm exploring. Is it funny? Are people gonna laugh at this? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a dud, maybe it's a bomb, maybe it's not funny. But I need to be able to have the expression to go to those uncharted territories and those uncharted waters, those lands of the unknown, the depths of the soul and of my beingness to see what's there so that I could paint on the color palette of this big canvas of our, of our world and add some kind of color to it. Uh, and so I think that having that ability to do that is, 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 a, is a vital importance and not just in the world of comedy, but in the world of ideas, in the world of how should we behave and how should we act and how should we govern and how should we 
you know, uh, organize and how should we, um, you know, contribute to, 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 to creating a better world. Let's, we got to test it out. We got, you know, people oftentimes think that, uh, that libertarianism is this sort of like, uh, weird tyrannical ideology, right? Like I've even heard Tom Woods say like, Oh yeah, the uh, libertarians are conspiring to make a free world so everybody can be independent and have liberty. That's the big conspiracy. It's like, well, under our system, you're free to experiment however you want, you know? Free to experiment in anything. And the freedom to experiment is diversity and novelty and newness, experimentation, which leads to things that we can't even imagine. You know, so in some places they can experiment with socialism, in some places they can experiment with communism, in some places they can experiment with all kinds of radical ways of doing stuff. Um, but I, I, I think that we need the freedom to experiment we need, and we need the freedom to speak. And if that's restricted, then we're restricted, we're constricted, we're living small, we're boxed in, we're closed in our rooms, under our covers, hiding away, locked away, covering our faces, afraid to come out. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of microcosm for the human experience of, of sheltering yourself away and locking yourself away. Uh, it, it's, it's giving up, giving it all the power to the machine that's already in operation to just execute on its agendas. But what about you? What about your life? What about how you feel? What about what you think? What about you, your dreams and what you want to do? And how real does that feel inside of you? Or is there a conflict? Is there something that's not working? Um, so I hope that people can wake up and, and we can shake off this idea of fear and step out into the fold and, and take risks and say things that are controversial and, and see, and let's, let's, uh, let's join together and see what works. What's the best, what's the best way of doing stuff. Well, great brother. That's, uh, that sounds like a perfect way to end it. I, I know you got to run soon. Um, that was beautiful. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we covered it all. Uh, yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, this was great. And, um, yeah, well, we'll have to do it again. We'll have to have you back on the show. Yeah, man. Likewise. I, I, I say, we, I, say we, hours. <laughs> I, I always say we, when I'm referring yeah. to my show, it's literally just me, but when you say we, it sounds better, right? Yeah. Sounds more professional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Uh, it's great seeing you. You look good. I'm, I'm happy to hear all the things you're up to, your, your show, your new show, the, the, the projects you're running. Um, if, if people are interested in, in hearing more from you, how can they, they listen to you through your podcasts? You, you said you're running some retreats too. Is that something people can find out more about? Yeah. So I have a, a link tree uh, that has like all these links where you can go to all the various places. Um, you know, I'll send that to you. You can put that in the show notes and people can just go wherever they want. The podcast is out everywhere. So Spotify, I, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, Stitcher, all the places. And uh, yeah, just Google my name and uh, Mike Adelic. And uh, sometimes I go by Mike Brank. My website is actually that. So it's mikebrank.com, B-R-A-N-C. I sort of Ellis Island, my name for the internet. And, um, and then Patreon is where I'm doing a lot of really cool things. Uh, so it's kind of like, uh, 
uh, you get the the comedy show, you get early access releases, bonus episodes, merchandise, stickers, things of that nature. And then there's a private uh, Discord channel where people from all around the world are connecting in my cult. I mean, my uh, podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's great. And um, it's it's all about the community, you know? So uh, every time I see you doing stuff and and uh, I'm always trying to post it and share it and tell people about it. And uh, we all support each other and help each other. And uh, if these ideas resonate with you and you want to hear more, come find me. You know, Mike Adelic, Mike Brank, Mike Brankatelli. You'll find me one way or another. Great, brother. Well, I really appreciate it, man. It's it's always a pleasure talking to you and just kind of riffing off these ideas. And uh, I think it's so important. And I think it's something in the, these times we we really need a lot more of, as you said, that freedom of expression and communication and and, and putting these ideas up and, and seeing what comes to the surface. So um, you got a great show, man. And I, I really recommend everyone uh, starts to, to tune in and to subscribe and uh, and I wish you all the best, man. And, and hopefully we'll do this again soon. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. All right, everybody. That is it. I hope you enjoyed that show with Mike. I really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, he's a really good guy. He's up to some really good things. Um, as always, if you're able to help to support this show, um, Patreon is a really good way. It uh, allows you to sign up and to subscribe via different tiers. You can pledge different amounts of money for those, even just a dollar. Um, and it gives you some really nice added benefits, things like early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material. That's a really big help to me, to all the people who have uh, subscribed through Patreon. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, there's also the option of directly donating via PayPal. There'll be a link to both of those in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube page, subscribing to the show. Uh, turning on the notification bell, liking the video. That's a really big help with the algorithm so that this show can get out to a bigger and broader audience. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. So I think that's it. Uh, my next guest coming up... Um, uh, uh, I believe Roman will be coming on next. He's the head of uh, Paititi, which is a really big plant medicine center here in Peru. Uh, they do really good work, so I'll be speaking with him. Um, a lady named Tree Carr will be coming on to speak about dream work and the dream world. Um, um, another guy named Julian Vane will be coming on who does a lot of work with esoteric practices. He's also really involved with psychedelic medicine. Um, and some other really good guests will be coming on too, but I'm still not sure the exact order. So I think that's it. Thank you guys for tuning in and I will see you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.